If you find yourself shuttling from Cincinnati Airport to Lexington, Kentucky, down Interstate 75, you'll see the signs directing you to stop at Boone County Distilling Company. Only six minutes off the interstate, and you can take a tour of the only distillery that says its bourbon is made by ghosts. Too far to go? Well then, you can sit back and listen to today's episode, and I'll bring the tour to you. I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week, we are inspired to live life one cocktail at a time by the best in the industry. Today, we have Michael Thornton as our guide. He'll walk us through the workings of Boone County Distilling Company, where bottling began in 2015, but its history began in the 1700s. Discovering along the way how Boone County was one of the largest players in bourbon production throughout the centuries. But first, don't forget to head over to LushLifeCocktailTours.com to buy your ticket for the tastiest tour in town. London Town, that is. You'll be introduced to some of the most famous bars and bartenders in London, all while sipping their celebrated cocktails and learning about Soho's drinking history. We even have gift vouchers, so buy tickets for your loved ones. Now, let's get on with the show as Michael is about to set off for the tour. Uh, I'm Michael Thornton here at Boone County Distilling Company. This is a distillery that was reclaimed from the original Boone County Distilling Company in Petersburg, Kentucky, that went on to become the largest in Kentucky. Our owners wanted to reintroduce bourbon making here in Boone County, and that's what we've been doing for the past three years. Uh, and so, with that being said, I will ask a silly question, and that is, is there anyone here that is a fan of Prohibition? <laughs> There's a hard bench for you to sit on out there, sir. <laughs> the rest of us will enjoy it. Well, now, Prohibition actually lasted uh, here from 1920 to 1933. That was when the distillation, distribution, and sale of alcohol was prohibited. Now, uh, I will allow that here in Kentucky, actually voted that in the year prior to that, 1919. Now, the U.S. government did make available up to 10 permits for distilleries to continue bottling their existing product. Caveat being that it can only be done for medicinal purposes. So to legally acquire alcohol at that time, you had to go to your doctor, <clears throat> get a prescription, take that to a pharmacy, get that filled, and they would give you one pint of 100 proof whiskey. And if that didn't cure your ills, then in 10 days, you could repeat the process. So needless to say, there were quite a few ill people here during that time period, and it seemed to get better. But one of the legacies we have at that time period is that to this day here in Kentucky, you can actually go to a pharmacy and purchase alcohol. However, ever since that point in time, no one has been in the bourbon making business here in Boone County. And so this is why we say we're made by goats. You'll notice our sign over the doorway here and on other items. The reason we say that is because we wanted to honor the original distillery workers. They're the ones that paved the way for us to be here today. Uh, and without them, we wouldn't be here. So. Before we head on back inside, I will just uh, ask that you all please mind your stuff because it is a working distillery. There are gonna be plenty of things for you to slip on, trip on back there. Some equipment might be hot and for obvious reasons, we're gonna ask for no smoking throughout the tour. But if you all are ready, we can go ahead and get rolling. What we're gonna do now, we're gonna actually start on back in our grain mill. So if you wanna follow me on back this way. So uh, everything begins with grinding grain. Uh, and this is where we have mill ours. We have a hammer mill here. Now, the Petersburg Steam Mill Company had roller mills, accomplishes the same uh, uh, 
result, basically we start off with a number two yellow dead corn. It's a very high starch content hybrid corn. And what we end up with is a very fine grist. Now, what we're trying to do here is we're trying to maximize the surface area of all those starches. That's important because in the next step when we introduce enzymes in the form of the malted barley, those enzymes are going to break these starches down into sugars. We introduce a yeast. The yeast consumes the sugars and produces the different alcohols and congeners for our product. These are the basic steps that any distillery goes through regardless of scale. And we're a small scale operation here. We're only pulling anywhere from 8 to 10 barrels a week, pardon me, sir. Uh, but our distillers are in here milling several days out of the week uh, because it takes approximately 640 pounds of grain to fill each of those barrels. Uh, so as you can imagine, in the summertime, it is just a bit of a sauna in here. They're hoisting up 50-pound bags onto the stand, dumping them in the hopper, and repeating, repeating, repeating. So it is not a glamorous job, but we are glad they do that. Uh, behind these folks here in the corner, you're going to see our uh, grain bill. We have 74% corn, 21% rye, 5% malted barley. All that corn gives you a fair amount of sweetness. A uh, little bit of spice with the rye, and if you're really good, you might pick up some cereal tones with that malted barley. Now, to be a bourbon, you have to have at least 51% corn in the grain bill. Uh, this wasn't written into legislation until relatively recently, uh, but corn's always been a very prominent grain in this area. It's actually what helped settle the area. If you go back after that uh, Revolutionary War, we were just a territory of Virginia. So to get people out here, they would deed them 50 acres of land. You would come out here, carve out your little niche, but then you had to grow corn and send it back. They'll pay for it. They called it corn patching cabin rights. And by name, bourbon can only be made here in the U.S. because in 1964, Congress deemed it to be our distinctive spirit. They wanted to protect it like Scotland did Scotch. So, uh, before we step outside, so one of the characters, and you'll see him up on the wall when we get on down uh, to the other end, was Lewis Loder. Uh, Lewis Loder was a bookkeeper at the distillery for a very long time, also a justice of the peace, and he also kept a diary. Uh, anytime you see any kind of quotes, these came directly from his diary. And there's a good one we have highlighted in orange right here, talking about his boss's bear. So as it says, Mr. Schneider's bear got loose and run half over the town, but he jumped over to Mrs. Snelling's yard, and Perry McNeely caught him. They tied a large cable to a piece of a chain that was to him and took him back to his box. We don't know why Mr. Schneider, the original owner of the uh, Boone County Distilling Company, had a bear, but we do know that it was a black bear brought up from Evansville, Indiana on a paddleboat. Uh, he didn't have it very long because this was just one of a number of incidences to where this bear broke loose and ran around town, caused havoc, bit people, and generally irritated the town folks. And they told him, enough is enough, Mr. Schneider, please get rid of it. And so he did. But we still thought it would make a good name for our still out there. So if you want to do me a favor, follow me right around the corner of the cooker. Pardon. All righty. So as soon as we're done grinding those grains, we're going to bring them over here to our cooker. Combine them with 200, or I'm sorry, uh, combine them with our limestone water, cook it at 210 degrees for half an hour. This is going to help soften the grains, kind of plump up the starches, makes it easier for them to be broken down. Then cool it down to 150 degrees, add in that malted barley, which not only introduces enzymes, but also acts as an anti-binding agent. Now, we also introduce a yeast, but we have to cool it down again. You can't have it too hot. Cool it down to 72 degrees, and we utilize what's called a back set here. We take 20 to 30% from a previous batch, add that in. This adds the nutrients, lowers the pH level, which is beneficial to the yeast. But most importantly, it allows us to maintain consistency throughout every single batch that we make. 
That is the sour mash process. Fairly common. Um, and that's one of the things. For those of you that is first time here, again, I thank you very much. Um, and I always recommend to people, if it is your first time or your 20th time visiting the distillery, take the time to go out and visit, visit as many as you can. Because everyone does have their own unique story. But one thing you'll find out that remains pretty much constant throughout is that virtually nothing goes to waste. We bring in the grain and we mill it, cook it, ferment it, distill it, use some of the leftover stillage as a back set. Well, the thick stillage we hold on to for a farmer because it's still very nutrient rich. And that's what this gentleman behind us did, Joseph Jenkins. He actually raised livestock at that original distillery site and was so successful doing that, he became part owner of the distillery. So it's a pretty good deal. So if we want to follow me on around here, and we're going to come on up here as far as to the uh, fermentation tanks. Now, after we're done cooking the mash in the cooker, we're going to transfer it via this, these pipes to one of these four fermenters where it's going to sit for three to four days. Now, initially, that mash is going to be like a sweet cream corn. We fill it up, turn on the agitator a little bit to introduce some oxygen into the mash turn it off, then that yeast will activate. And then as it consumes those sugars, it's going to become more like a warm sourdough bread. It's producing the different alcohols and flavors. You're going to see the CO2 being released. After it's done fermenting, it's going to be about uh, three, I'll say five to seven percent alcohol considered distiller's beer. We pump that over to a still, clean out the tanks, cover them up with these black shower caps, pump in 200 degrees steam heat, Two hours later, it's sterilized, and we're ready to roll through again. Now, given the relatively small scale of our operation here, and the fact that these are only 500 gallons, we don't have any kind of a vent hood over them to siphon off the CO2 just because of the open air design that we have. Larger distilleries have that issue. Uh, and I don't. are you all going to be hitting Buffalo Trace at all? Well, if... If ever you have the opportunity to visit Buffalo Trace uh, Distillery down in Frankfurt, our capital, I recommend it. It is the oldest continuously operating distillery here in the U.S. So you compare our three years of history here with their over 200. Needless to say, there's a lot to see and learn. But the one thing is that you get to see how scalable the process is. Because while these tanks are 500 gallons, their fermentation tanks each for over 92,000 gallons in capacity. Now with that much volume CO2 coming off, you have to take it away so you don't have to worry about anyone succumbing to that and falling in the mash. Because mash actually has zero buoyancy because of the lack of oxygen, which means that if you fell in, you go down to the bottom like a stone. Now as you will see with our tanks, we would be able to fish you out, and we would, but with those larger tanks, that is a one-way trip you don't want to take. All righty, if you all gather around here, you get to see our bear. This is a 500-gallon combination still made by Vendome out of Louisville. Uh, they have been making equipment for the industry here since the early 1900s. There's not too many distilleries. You won't find some of their equipment in here in the U.S. Now, it's considered a combination still. If you look at the bottom half, it's more like a traditional pot still with the onion on top. Short column gives us some flexibility. We bring that distiller's beer on in here for a wash run. It's going to take about six hours to separate the alcohol from the mash. 
we end up with this, what's called a, a low wine. It's about 70 proof. We're gonna store that back here in an intermediate tank until we accumulate for those wash runs. Then we're gonna bring them back through for a series of spirit runs. It's gonna take about eight hours, roughly doubles the proof. So our distillate comes off here about 135, 140 proof. Now the maximum for bourbon to be distilled is 160 proof. Capped it at the level, because when you get above that, you're starting to strip away too much flavor. And with bourbon, you want all the flavor in there that you can get. It's actually one of the advantages that copper gives us, aside from being an excellent heat conductor, it also imparts certain desirable flavors into the product. So as you can see, while we're running here, the distiller's bubbling up through the tube in the spirit safe. Our distillers can use a portable proofreader to monitor the progress. When they're done with that, they're gonna use deionized water, proof it down to 120 proof, that is our barrel electron proof, and the maximum for bourbon being 125. Now you can take a look on down the far end, you're gonna see some of our barrels down there all wrapped up. That's the way they come to us, and I'll explain why if you come on over here. Pardon me. So we get our barrels from Kelvin Cooper's down local. Scotsman started the business in 63, two sons work there now, make some excellent barrels. Now the law states that for bourbon, you have to use a virgin or one-time use chart pardon me, charred oak container. Now, oak is gonna be used of whatever variety, white, red, French, doesn't matter, because when it's milked properly, it will give you a liquid type material. Won't be vapor type, but it's liquid type. They use steam to form the staves, and then they're gonna go ahead and toast the barrels. Apply heat to the inside to caramelize the wood sugars, release vanillins out of the wood, helps give you nice caramel tones, and that's what we like about Kelvin is that they still use that old school method of using the oak scraps to fire the inside of the barrels. Some large cooperages here in the U.S. use propane. It will give you a different profile. And then we do about a 55 second burn on it. Gives us a number four char, alligator char on it. The purpose of this, twofold. One, U.S. law predicates that any American whiskey aged in the barrel has to have a minimum of an eighth of an inch of char on the inside of it. The main purpose is to provide a portal for that bourbon to interact with the wood. Because when we start off with those basic grain notes from the mash, they will come through in the distillate. We fill up the barrels, take it outside, it's gonna heat up. It's gonna force that bourbon deep into the oak. That's gonna give it additional notes of honey, vanilla, spice, myriad of other flavors. However, then it'll cool off, draw back inside the barrel. Next day heats up and on we go. So while bourbon can be made anywhere here in the U.S., 95% of all bourbon is still made here in our Commonwealth because we have a constant fluctuation of temperatures. That's the engine that drives the aging process. So with time, you're going to have this slow but gradual interaction with the wood. Compounds are slowly being broken down, recombined, and then thanks to time and Mother Nature, it develops into all those wonderful flavors we get to enjoy in bourbon. So it's a neat process, uh, and it, it's one that begins immediately, as soon as we fill up the barrels. That's what transforms that Tanner's Kirsch into that bourbon. We could fill up a barrel, roll it on over to the barrel trough, dump it out. Technically, it would be a bourbon because it had aged 30 seconds to do that. However, the law here also states that anything less than four years requires an age statement. Let's face it, no one's gonna buy a less than one day old bourbon, so we don't do that. Now, the Tanner's Curse that we fill it up with, that is our 120 proof 
uh, new make that we put into the barrels. We named it Tanner's Curse after the tanners that founded Tanner Station back in the uh, late 1700s. That's what went on to become Petersburg, Kentucky, site of the original distillery. There was a Reverend John Tanner and his brother that did this. However, before they were there, you also had the Fort Ancient Indians that had been there. They actually used that site as a burial ground. And then the tanners built on top of it. And yes, bad things did happen. Uh, he had two sons that were part of a hunting expedition. They were actually headed down river going to a local salt lick. They got ambushed by a chief and part of his tribe. One of the sons was killed outright. Uh, the remaining son, Ezra, two other men were pinned down for two days until reinforcements arrived. But it was for the other side. So, Ezra thought maybe he'd be able to get out of that by challenging the chief to the uh, duel for safe passage. So he did, and the chief accepted, chose tomahawks. They fought for an hour on Table Rock. Ezra actually won that battle. And then the tribe reneged on the promise, came in and scalped them all anyway. Uh, one of the men was uh, left for dead, was actually able to crawl back to the settlement, tell that tale before he expired as well. But then the Reverend's troubles weren't over yet. He also had another son, 12-year-old boy, torn apart by wild hogs. Had a nine-year-old boy that was abducted by a tribe of Shawnee from up north, and he was gone for over 24 years. The next year, same tribe came down and abducted his 15-year-old brother. Now, he was able to break away after a couple days, make it back to the settlement, but they held on to his wool cap. And when they got back up north, they showed it to the younger brother and told him that they had gone down and wiped out his entire family, just so he wouldn't have a reason to break away as well. So it's to honor them in this region's rather wild and tumultuous history that we decided to name our new make, Tanner's Curse. So if you want to follow me on back this way, Back on the left, you're going to see our boiler produces all our heat. Up front is where we deionize water, make sure nothing's going to adversely affect the flavor when we proof it down. Because the only thing that you can add to a bourbon, aside from another bourbon, and still have it be bourbon, is water. Yes, sir. Is that a common practice among distilleries to ionize the water? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, because on the front end, you're going to want those minerals and so on uh, just to add to the flavoring. Uh, of course, if you go back in the day uh, when distillers were starting and it was widespread, um, it's one of the reasons why bourbon took off here in Kentucky is because you had that natural limestone uh, filtration. And actually, when we get back inside, we'll cover on some of the aspects on that. But, you know, these days, of course, we have many different options on filtration. Uh, but at the same time, you wouldn't want a, shall we say, clean water to cook with. But to proof with, that's a good thing. So while we're doing a wash run out here, we're gonna pump the stillage out here, separate it up top, collect the thin stillage and the silver tank to use as a back set. Thick stuff comes on over here, hold on to that for a farmer. He comes and collects it a couple times a week. So we're still maintaining a relationship between farmers and distillers that goes back well, over a couple hundred years. So I, I am Sorry that we do not have any scenic vistas for you here. I explained why we're here, but trust me, later on, especially tomorrow, you are going to get plenty of them. I hope this weather holds out. Uh, there is nothing like taking a nice relaxing drive through some of the, uh, uh, the lesser traveled roads, uh, get to see all the horse farms. That will be wonderful. So 
If you take a look down at the far end here, you're going to see that we're expanding our warehouse. We're three years old, and yet we are already growing. Um, we needed the space, uh, as you'll see as soon as we get inside here. Uh, another aspect of growth, uh, if you turn around, you'll see our white tasting tent. Now, we had plans on the books already to expand on this side to have an event center, a couple different tasting areas, about 150-person capacity. But before that got started, we got our big brown highway signs put up. Now, with those signs here, uh, going back to last fall, all right, there's different uh, qualifications you have to have for those signs. Well, to get some signs at the end of the exit ramp, we had to show we were getting 7,000 visitors a year. Okay, so we proved that, got those signs put up, helped that a little bit. But to qualify for the big signs on the interstate, you have to show you're getting like 70,000 visitors a year. All right, now we're never gonna have 70,000 visitors here. But the argument was made that since we're part of the craft distillery tour, right now there's 14 of us, so the smaller operations on that, that they should be taken as a whole. State of Kentucky agreed to that, we got them up and boom people started pouring in. We actually had more than 700 more visitors in July than the previous month because of those signs. So we got the tasting tent put up to try and tide us over until we get that uh, expansion going here a little bit later on this year. But step inside here, take a deep breath and enjoy. When we get the barrels from Kelvin, they weigh 100 pounds. We fill them up, they weigh approximately 500 pounds. Bring them out here on these racks, put them in place. Uh, within a, a short amount of time, about 7% of that bourbon is going to get sucked into the wood. And then in, uh, you usually have about 3 to 4% evaporation every year, every year thereafter. Now, it really depends on the, the type, uh, nature, orientation of the warehouse as to what happens to it. Uh, with this rack system, it allows us to have one person with a forklift, take the place of an entire warehouse crew. Still allows for ventilation between the barrels. Now, as we look on over to the left, you'll see some barrels without our logo. Those are some of the remaining source barrels that we started off with. Because what happened when our owners reclaimed the title of the original distillery in 2015? Well, they got a consultant to help out. And that consultant is Larry Ebersold. He's a former master distiller, worked at the old Seagram's plant in Lawrenceburg, Indiana. So he's the one that helped us get set up with equipment and procedures. But then we also had an opportunity to buy 500 barrels of bourbon that he had distilled in 2005 and 2006. That is where we get our 1833 product from. Exactly. And the significance of those barrels is that he used the same grain bill for that as what we use today. And so the thought was that that would give people an idea of what ours will eventually taste like. That is basically our goal. Uh, we're well on our way on that. Um, to be in this business, you have to be terribly patient, though, uh, because everything takes time. Now, you can appreciate the weight loads as far as with these, uh, this rack system as far as these barrels, but that's the reason why barrels have been in use for so long, is because they're very efficient size and shape, incredibly strong. Now you have all sorts of environmental concerns here that contribute to the aging process. Now with the orientation here, you have the top south wall, that's where we're gonna get the most heat and the most evaporation. On the bottom northeast, we found that it stays relatively cooler, but the humidity stays higher. 
that higher humidity is going to drive down that proof level over time. Now, every warehouse has its own characteristics. And that's another reason why I always recommend Buffalo Trace, because they've had the advantage with all those years. They have many different warehouses, different construction materials, orientations. So with only two different grain bills, they can offer nearly 20 different products. It's a really neat process. It's something that we hope to do here on down the road. Now, one of the things we learned the hard way, uh, there's a lot of things you learn when you start off in this business. Uh, we had a different arrangement as far as for these barrels. And we totally forgot to take into consideration our forklift and the operating room it needs. So we went along with what we could right now. After we get done later on this month with the expansion down here, we're looking at doing a reset as far as with the barrels. So we'll start off at that end chronologically, work our way back. And that will also allow us to do a very neat long-term experiment. Taking about a week's uh, worth of uh, barrels, eight to 10, and then we can put them in different locations. So basically you're gonna have one batch in different locations, even have a couple upright, and then see how those develop differently over the years and taste the difference after four, six, eight years. Uh, so it'll be a nice opportunity to do that. Um, so uh, the very first barrels, if you wanna come on down this way. A little hard to see, but it's on the top back. October 3rd, 2015 was the first fill date. Now those will set the benchmark for our bourbon when we decide to release it. It won't be until early to mid 2020 though. Uh, so it'll be at least a four year uh, plus product, but it is a slow process because we're not gonna bottle everything. We're gonna let some barrels continue to age. That's the only way you get to those older age statements. Um, and no decision's been made yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if we start doing single barrel releases until we see how the flavor profile is tracking, and then we can go on from there. We have a rye aging out here as well. It'll be at least a three-year rye. Um, and if you all have an interest as far as keeping track with what we have going on, you're more than welcome to sign up on the email list. We won't spam you. I'll just give you the heads up on stuff here. So when the temperature does drop down uh, 45 below 45 degrees, the bourbon stops interacting with the wood here. It doesn't hurt anything. Uh, we didn't do any kind of steam heat here like larger distilleries do, simply because it didn't make sense from a cost perspective, um, but we're fine with going the slow and steady route. Uh, and one of the advantages that we have with this metal construction here is that with the wild temperature swings that we've had, it has been doing wonders on the bourbon in here. I've had ours at the year, two year, and two and a half year mark, and I would actually put our two and a half year stuff up against some people's four year old stuff. But that's the thing is that to be patient on this is key. Now there are some large uh, or some new distilleries that will have investors and they're always pushing for you to get something out there in a hurry. Of course, investors want to return on their you know, money yesterday. Uh, but then when you put a new product out there too soon, you're going to taste it. It's going to be hot and grainy and so on. And it just takes time to have that interaction with the wood to really start developing all those uh, better flavors that you get with an older age product. Now, that's another advantage that we have here, uh, as opposed to Scotland, given the different climate, because one season up there is the equivalent of about three or four down here. So you get a lot more interaction. 
Uh, of course, it doesn't hurt that they uh, get a little helping hand there by using used bourbon barrels. Even. Just saying. Uh, but bourbon makes everything better. Uh, now, actually, you can see behind the gentleman here, we have, uh, the, uh, if you, uh, there you go, right here on the wall. So we have some uh, gauges out here to give people an idea of the variances that you'll get. Uh, this is outside. This is back where we're at. This is that bottom northeast and the top south wall. I have seen temperatures over 30 degrees difference between the top and the bottom at a given point in time. And I've seen those uh, high temperatures on the top south wall drop 40 degrees at night. So it can be interesting to live through, but we also know that it's making for great bourbon. And also one of the reasons why we have more bourbon barrels here in Kentucky than we do people. We have our priorities right. <laughs> so if you take a look above me, uh, above the wall here, you might want to step back a little bit so you can see uh, better. That top photo was taken in 1900, and the one below three years later. Uh, and we know most of the names and the people in this lower photograph. Uh, we know that if you go foreign from the right, young woman there, right, yep. Maud Loudon, believe it or not, she was only 15 years old at the time. Now you look closely, you'll see the two ladies on the other end holding onto bottles. We believe it may be a different division of the distillery, bottling and labeling, or it could be tasting because it is actually the ladies, gentlemen, that have the better olfactory systems and palates than we gents do. And this has been an industry that has benefited from your all's influence for generations. So keep up the good work. Now, as, like I was saying, as far as you appreciate the weight loads on that, but as uh, strong as those barrels are, this gives you an idea as far as how much pressure builds up inside when you see how much penetration there is with a bourbon into the wood, and that is exactly what you like. And that's why if you look at a new barrel head, it's nice and flat, but the older ones will have these uh, deviations and divots and so on on that just because of the pressure that it has been subjected to over time. So just one, uh, one quick note as far as with prohibition. Um, if you take a look at the outside of our warehouse here, you will notice some uh, dark material. But you look down at the newer section, it's all nice and clean. This here is the whiskey fungus, Baldonia, which will, is a fungus that thrives on those higher ethanols that you find around a warehouse. Uh, when you get down to Maker's Mark, you'll notice that some genius in the past decided to go ahead and keep everything stained nice and dark, so it hides in plain sight. We don't have that advantage here. Now, if you go back to Prohibition, because you had a lot of farmers that did their own distilling and so on, they started getting into the habit of staining their fences and their barns black because they didn't want this to stand out. So when the federal agents came through, they would know that they had been distilling. Is and that the moonshine? Exactly. Yeah, and moonshining uh, generally denotes a illicitly produced uh, product. Uh, and the reason it is uh, illegal is because the tax man is not getting his cut. Now, as distillers with those barrels, we pay an ad valorem tax on the capacity every year we have them. Doesn't matter how much or how little is left. So approximately 60% of the cost of spirits in these parts goes to taxes. So when we dump out the barrels, we bring them in on the forklift, put them up on the rack here, pop it up and take out the bung with a drill. Rotate it on over, it gets dumped through this very fine mesh screen. This collects all the bits of char that slough off inside the barrels. 
but this does not go to waste either because a lot of people like to use this for smoking and grilling. We bag it up, put it inside, and typically, pardon me, within three to four days, it's gone. It's that popular. Now those barrels, uh, some of those will go to a local woodworker at Verona Woodcraft. He makes a lot of the neat things inside. And those barrels now weigh about 125 pounds. There's still plenty of juice in there, and that's why we always have local brewers that like to make use of our barrel. Uh, there's another uh, smaller uh, distillery, Second Sight Spirits, that do a lot of rums. They're aging some of their uh, rum in our barrels as well. Uh, then we also sell them off to individuals as well for 115 with tax. So everything does find a home eventually here. Uh, after we're done mingling however many barrels here for our 1833, gets pumped through a filter and goes into a product tank. And then we move it on down here to the scale to proof it down to a very specific 90.8 proof. Of course, they knew with the different densities of alcohol, how much water by weight to add in to get to a certain uh, proof level. And then when they're done proofing it down, they're gonna move it on over here to the bottling line so we can start that process. We'll have three to five people working here, have a skid with the empty bottles, take them out, clean out two at a time on the air jets, line them up, fill six at a time, push them on down, they get corked, go into another box on another skid, and we can get through anywhere from 12 to 15 bottles a minute while we're doing this. But it is very much a hands-on process here. Uh, really no more so than down here, because when we're done with this, we'll take them down here to the, do the labeling. We will uh, put a pseudo tax strip on top, seal it up with the cellophane, start applying the various labels, hang tags. And then start boxing them up, wrapping them up, and then the distributor will come and pick them up. Uh, another legacy we have from Prohibition here is that we have a three-tier system, so we're the producers, then you have the distributors, and then the retailers. Now, you might notice looking at the boxes over here that they come to us from Italy. And that is because we quickly found out that the bourbon cream looks a lot better in amber glass than it does clear glass, but the U.S. beer market controls all the amber glass. So to Italy we went but they make some pretty good bottles. So now the labels are printed right here in Northern Kentucky. We did design the overall look just to harken back to those pre-prohibition days. But then to honor the distillery itself, we decided to focus on the number eight. And if you take a look on over at the top of the image here, you're gonna see that was the distilled spirits plant number or DSP of that distillery was eight. And so that's why we proofed this to 90.8 proof lined up the O's and the Boone of the county to form a number eight. And it's the honor of the distillery that went on to become the largest in Kentucky. So after Chainer Station was found and then it became Petersburg, if you go back to 1833, that is the year that this gentleman on the side, William Schneider, came in. He was a miller from Virginia and he purchased the Petersburg Steam Mill Company. But within three years, he was operating a distillery alongside of that. Because like I said, a lot of corn was grown back in the day. They didn't want the excess to go to waste. So by distilling it, puts it into a stable form, but most importantly, it makes it a lot more valuable. Now at that time, an eight gallon bushel of corn was only worth about 25 cents. But a gallon of whiskey was worth nearly a dollar. So it was a good call on his part. And by 1860, they were actually producing over a million gallons of whiskey a year. And that's thanks to a number of the uh, factors that we have in this area. And I would say number one is our watershed. 
because that limestone will filter out any kind of iron impurities that will ruin the taste of a whiskey, turn it black in fact, but it also adds in calcium and magnesium. This is beneficial to the yeast. Now it's before the Fleshman brothers in Cincinnati had developed the compressed yeast process. So what the old time distillers had to rely on is the fact that Kentucky has a lot of wild airborne yeast. That's what they had to capture, cultivate, and utilize for fermentation. Uh, you also have great soil and growing seasons for all the grains necessary. Uh, this region's also in the middle of a huge swath of oak trees and it's supplied to Coopers with wood. And with the Ohio River right there, transportation was a lot easier. They'd send product down the river to places like Madison, Indiana, Louisville, or even upriver to Cincinnati. So all those things helped that Mr. Schneider. Now the distillery went on and had a number of different owners over the years and so on, but it reached its peak in 1897. At that point, it had become the largest distillery here in Kentucky, and actually about 14 times the size of the average distillery back then. They were producing over 4 million gallons of whiskey as that, at that point. But despite the fact of being only the second largest in the U.S., they were not invulnerable. You had many, many more distilleries back in the day. Some of them would take a page out of uh, Rockefeller's standard oil approach, and they would set up a whiskey trust. And this particular one was incorporated in New Jersey, Kentucky Distilleries and Warehouse Company. They used this as a vehicle to acquire other distilleries and take them out of business so they could keep overall supply low and they keep their prices high. And sadly, that's what happened to this distillery. They acquired it and over 50 others just to take out of business. So they ended up, after acquiring this distillery, shut down operations about 1910 and then just started selling everything off. So the equipment went elsewhere. Uh, uh, they started tearing down the buildings and they, they sent the bricks all over the place to be reused. And there's actually a number of buildings in Petersburg that were built with these discarded bricks that are still there, there today. But the remaining assets uh, uh, after they were sold off, uh, December 1918, and by that point in time, nearly 41,000 barrels of product had been sold off. And then with Prohibition right after that, Petersburg never recovered. There's just been an empty field where that distillery once was. But we did manage to acquire a little bit of that history, like one of the discarded bricks here. We found out these bricks were made right across the river in Aurora, Indiana. So they used the river clay over there when they were making them. But then we got super lucky with timing. We'd only been open a few months when our owners got a call from a contractor up in the Chicago area. He's up there renovating a home and took out a wall and he found that bottle. Now you always have to identify where something is produced. And he just looked at the bottom, Googled it. We came up and he called up and said, found one of your old bottles. Delightful surprise to say the least. Mailed it on down and we found out it was distilled in 1909 and bottled in 1913. And so far, as large as that distillery was, this bottle and that image are the only two representations we found so far of any of the products that they produced. So that gives you an idea as far as how much of an impact Prohibition had. So I do thank you very much for coming in. I'm glad you all get to see the rebirth of bourbon making here in Boone County. But if you are ready, we will head outside. Wow. I don't know about you, but that made me so thirsty for a cocktail. Needless to say, I bought my very own bottle of Boone County bourbon, and I'm making the most classic of all classics with it for our cocktail of the week. 
But before that, I need to thank Michael and everyone at Boone County Distilling Company, plus Kentucky Tourism, who arranged the tour. Now about that cocktail. I'm not going to repeat the history of the old-fashioned, because you can find it all on one of my previous episodes devoted to its origins, when I experienced the Urban Bourbon Trail in Louisville. But I can say that last year, Drinks International Magazine released its list of the best-selling cocktails around the world. And what was number one? Yes, the old-fashioned, beating out the ubiquitous mojito and espresso martini. Just so you remember, here is its recipe again, but made with Boone County bourbon, if you can get your hands on it. In an old-fashioned glass, put in a quarter-sized pour of simple syrup in the bottom of the glass. Add two dashes of Angostura bitters, an orange wedge, and a maraschino cherry. Muddle gently without smashing everything together. Then pour in 2.5 ounces of Boone County bourbon, add ice, and stir. That's the old-fashioned, the Pendennis Club way. You can find this recipe, more bourbon recipes, and all the cocktails of the week at alushlifemanual.com, where you'll also find all the ingredients in our shop. The old-fashioned is one of my favorite cocktails ever. And I think the magic ingredient is swapping out the Angostura bitters for cherry bitters. It adds that touch of magic to an already magical cocktail. If you live for Lush Life, would you consider supporting us by buying us a coffee? Just go to buymeacoffee.com slash lushlife and you can donate once or monthly to make sure we are still here every Tuesday. Also, you know how much I love to talk about cocktails, and we can all be together talking on the Flick.group slash Lush Life app. It's free to join and works on Android or iOS devices. Plus, you can listen to the latest episodes right there if you want to catch up. Theme music for Lush Life is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. And Lush Life is always and will forever be produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media Productions. Which leaves me to say the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation, and always drink responsibly. Okay, that second part was mine. Up and coming on Lush Life, we head to Jamaica, to the home of what is rumored to be the archetypal heavy pot rum of choice throughout Europe. Until next time, bottoms up. <laughs>